The Technology Modernization Fund turns five years old this month. Upon the anniversary of the passage of the Modernizing Government Technology Act, the Biden administration is asking for $200 million for the TMF in fiscal 2024. Claire Martirana, the federal chief information officer, and Raylene Young, the executive director of the TMF, tell executive editor Jason Miller about the impact of the fund, how it helped agencies get out from under their technical debt and improve citizen services. You hear Martirana first. TMF celebrating a five-year anniversary is really a huge milestone for us. We've been investing in IT modernization projects that have real human impacts on the ways that the federal government provides services to the American people. We work hard to make sure that we're increasing public trust and making it easier for the American people to get the services they need. And I know Raylene has some really wonderful statistics to share with you. So today, we've really come a long way in in the last several years. Uh, We managed nearly $700 million in active investment for 38 investments across 22 federal agencies. Um, And 27 of those investments were made with the historic American Rescue Plan funding that was received just a few years ago. And in total, to date, the TMF has received and reviewed more than 220 different proposals, which total over $3.5 billion in total funding um, in demand for the fund. So Pretty impressive stats and and really incredible progress, especially in the last few years. I was going to actually ask about that because that's been one of the big changes. I know, Claire, this goes probably before you and maybe even before Raylene had gotten to your current positions, but there was a lot of hesitation from agencies whether or not they wanted to apply for TMF. Do you get a sense that over the last few years, agencies are not only more comfortable with applying for funding and asking for potential loans, but they're, they're, they're better at what makes a good investment and why? Talk about that growth. It has been really clear that there's demand, right? There, There's absolutely no question based on the numbers Raylene shared that IT modernization, cybersecurity, customer experience, um, and legacy IT issues challenge every single federal agency. So TMF under the American Rescue Plan with our historic $1 billion investment has really um, changed how agencies think about TMF. And when we were able to change our repayment um, model from 100% repayment to some flexibility for agencies that had very specific needs, it really um, had agencies leaning forward and leaning into TMF where they might not have previously. And Raylene, from the uh, on the ground perspective, what are you seeing maybe differently as agencies are submitting their proposals? I know you all work very closely with them. How have those proposals also evolved over the last you know couple of years? I think something you mentioned around working just really closely with the agencies. I think that's also been a big change in the last few years. We've meaningfully kind of grown the the TMF program. We expanded the board and added new members and obviously added subject matter experts to the team. So that's given us just an increased ability to engage quite early and often with agencies who are interested in the TMF. One concrete example is previously agencies would, you know, submit a proposal and it would go to the board and they'd have to go through this kind of full process right away. But over the last year, we introduced a new process that enables agencies to get started in a very lightweight quick way where sometimes they can take only 15 minutes and submit some basic information and get hands-on advice and support from the PMO, um, which enables them to kind of really engage more deeply on the work and, and have a great, you know, kind of discussions and conversation with the board. 
And roughly, how big is the board today, or the program management office, I should say? And what kind of subject matter experts have you brought in over the last you know year or so? We know cyber, customer experience, and the like. But maybe if you could go to the next level down of where they're focused on, or how they're helping agencies get better with their proposals. On the program management office's side, you know, you mentioned CX, you mentioned cybersecurity. I would just say we provide a kind of general technical support, helping agencies take a more agile approach to their uh, modernization plans. Um, and that's been a really big focus is just looking at how to break down the projects, ensure that incremental impact is achieved as they embark on their projects. And I guess I would just add on the board side, you know, we really have a very well-rounded board that are used to managing the complexities in the federal environment from, you know, procurement, the challenges uh, we often have with making sure that we have the contracting vehicles in place, the staff able to work on the program, the leadership support. So making sure that we're not as um, IT executives building something and hoping everyone will come, making sure that these projects are thinking dynamically about the change management, not digitizing bureaucracy, really reinterrogating their entire business process in an agile way with human-centered support to make sure that we are shipping the most important and complete projects on time with milestones that are previously identified and we manage our funding to those milestones. So I think the board has really focused on adding those types of evaluations to our um, process. And at the same time, Claire, can you maybe also talk a little bit about how those the conversations on the board has changed over the last couple of years? I mean, you were over at OPM previously, then you moved over to OMB. So I'm not sure you had, before you came to OMB, any experience with the TMF board, if you were just more kind of narrowly focused on OPM, or if you had some of that government-wide. Can you get a sense of how the board is looking at these projects differently, how they are, where maybe something two, three, four years ago would not have made it to the, risen to the top, but today has? Any any examples come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our investments, we measure success. And I think that having technologists and all of these experts interrogating a project up front, it really benefits an agency's team to have outside people who might not be as familiar with the subject matter expertise of a project really being able to ask and focus on the features and benefits, right? What are the the metrics that are going to be focused on? like cost savings and avoidance that, you know, time saved by either the end customer, the public, or federal employees, um, if they're the customer set. Process improvements, like reinterrogating all of the activities that go into a program before just lifting and shifting something, we're really reinterrogating re-inter- business processes, looking at making sure our data is protected, the systems are consolidated, that there's sunset plans for the older IT that is no longer going to be used, and then making sure that we're really measuring user impact and customer satisfaction are really key parts. And with some of the payment flexibility, I think we are really seeing teams leaning into 
um, building an MVP, validating their technical requirements, making sure that they're on the right path internally before they go ahead and try and stand up and build an entire system. They're doing all of the really rigorous work up front. And that actually, you know, we're really excited because we can see how that is driving down failure rates. Claire Martorano, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can read their column exclusively at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. 
So, Sulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the way I that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.